This is the Ed Milet Show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, I have a chance to talk with a living legend all the way from Manchester, England. And um, I have to tell you, in his 86, nearly 87 years on this planet, his knowledge and expertise as an entrepreneur and building one of the biggest global brands of all time is almost unprecedented. And to have the opportunity to sit down with somebody like this today and share his wisdom with you is a complete honor. So my guest today is the founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. Welcome to the show. Ed, what a great introduction. <laughs> well, Thank you very much. I just, I read this whole book cover to cover and Joe's book is called Shoemaker and uh, kind of a play off of a little bit of, I think what Phil wrote, but the untold story of the British family firm that became a global brand. So let's get into that story and let's get into lessons for entrepreneurs because we, I, we could go six hours on this. The interesting part of your story is it doesn't actually really begin with your story. It kind of begins with your grandfather that your family's been in this business, so to speak, back into the, eight, the late 1800s. So tell us a little bit about your grandfather and sort of the revolutionary that he was and some of the lessons learned from him. When I started working at the Foster family, we didn't really talk that much about grandfather. It's only when we left the Foster family and we started Reebok and we started to research a lot more. But uh, he was a genius. He really was. <clears throat> In 1895, the age of 15, the age of 15, what you call it invented or he pioneered the spike running shoe. Yes. Is, is a matter of opinion. Uh, but he got the idea from his grandfather. So that's going back even further. <clears throat> he used to go down to his grandfather, who was a cobbler. Uh, but not only did he repair street shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots had spikes in at that time. So my grandfather, Joe, he was a sort of an average runner, member of the Bolton Primrose Harriers. And uh, sort of finished halfway down the field, thought maybe I've put spikes in my shoes, get a bit more grip, <clears throat> maybe I'll do better. And he did. He came a very, very unlikely second in, I wouldn't say the first race, but because he, he had to perfect his shoes, but he came a very unlikely second and his, his teammates were looking at him and looking, thinking, oh, mm, what, you know, what's this? Is he cheating? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so... He wasn't a big lad, so I suppose really he chose the uh, the route of making everybody's shoes instead of. Uh... <laughs> and the making of everybody's shoes part is this is the revolutionary. You know, you, everyone knows about Reebok and it becomes this global brand. But you go all the way back. There were secrets with your grandfather, which was he was really the first guy to kind of get the Michael Jordans of that time, the athletes to endorse and wear his product, which was genius. Right. So tell us yeah. who he made shoes for. This is crazy. Yeah, well, he he's really you. the first ever branding guy. <laughs> his, his first pair of shoes oh, that was successful was a guy called Alf Shrub. And Alf Shrub in 1904. So uh, uh, my grandfather's business had sort of grown up from 1895 when he was a 15-year-old uh, youngster. And by 1904, he was well-known. And he, he obviously gave these shoes to Alf Shrub. Alf Shrub broke three world records in one event in Glasgow, uh, in a one-hour event, and during that one-hour event, he broke three world records. By 1908, grandfather had gold medals at the Olympics in, I think that was in London. And, and of course, unfortunately for him, uh, this, this sort of second decade, we had World War I. Nobody right. wanted running shoes, so they, they started repairing army boots. And there's a story in there about the army boots and uh, the, the mud of Flanders and whatever. But probably his biggest achievement, <clears throat> if you've heard of Chariots of Fire, Charles yes. of Fire is a film that immortalizes three athletes, Eric Little, Harold Abrams, and Lord Burley. 
They all won gold medals during the 1920s. And in this film, they're all immortalized in Chariots of Fire. Which is, which is, and he made their shoes. So he made lots and lots of shoes for the athletes. But he knew. He was an influencer. He knew where the influencers were. Yeah, in those days, we talk now about influencers a lot. But can you think about it? Back down there in the early 20th century, he is giving his shoes and he is getting the results. He even gave shoes to reporters, people who would report on events. And uh, so they would try. So, so they would then say, oh, foster shoes. Yes, I've tried them on. They, so it was wonderful. And one of it, I, he used to advertise, you know, right now we have social media. It's crazy. You know, what we can do these days is absolutely incredible. But all he could do was advertise in sort of local newspapers and whatever. And one of his advertisements in, I think it's called The Sportsman, was if you don't think that J.W. Foster's shoes are the best shoes you've ever worn, best bike shoes you've ever worn, uh, we'll give you £100. Now, £100 in wow. those days, we'll say that... Uh, at four times, that's about $400 today. It's about $40,000. I mean, it really is an incredible amount of money <laughs> that he was, uh, he was talking about. But, you know, that was Joe Foster. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. I'm just curious as your thoughts on it, because it's it's pretty revolutionary, guys. He goes all the way back, because we go to Reebok, and we know Reebok and Adidas and Nike are fighting over getting the right person to wear their shoe and all that. His grandfather, who he's named after, even more ironically, is the guy who really started this. So he didn't just make a revolutionary product because so many of you entrepreneurs listen to this. You have this great product. And one of the things Joe says in the book, I'll mess up the phraseology, but it stuck with me, was this point, which that it's not good enough just to have a good product. It has to get recognized. And so I think a lot of these entrepreneurs that are out there, I just think, hey, I'm going to win because my product's better than everybody else's. But what would you say to an entrepreneur now with social media, with you know, all that, how do you think it's important to get influencers helping you in your product now or other methods of getting recognition and acknowledgement? I often say, Joe, business used to be who, you know, and I think nowadays it's more who knows you in business is almost more important. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I agree with the, uh, the idea of that. Yes. Um, but whichever way, you know, we used to think about this many, many years ago. How do you get your product out there? Um, can you do it? I had one friend who, who thought that value for money was the way to do these things. So everybody got something at a better price. But no, it's influencers. You put them on the feet of the right people, and those people, they're the ones that spread the news. It's the same today, and it works. Okay, we've moved a little bit into sort of music and entertainment as against performance. Mm-hmm. And probably, well, certainly in my grandfather's day, it was performance. So <clears throat> he would do this at athletic meetings, go to athletics meetings, and the amount of advertising he could do was quite limited because it was only newspaper. So people had to pick up the newspaper and read it. Uh, so the biggest influence, influence was the reporting of athletes who won all these events, won gold medals. And I would mm-hmm. say by the end of the 1920s, probably my grandfather, Joe Foster, had won probably athletes in issues have won probably more gold medals than any other brand at all. And uh, incredible. Yeah. Which was an incredible story. And had we not been reasonably successful with Reebok, uh, mm-hmm. nobody would have known of Joe Foster, J.W. Foster and Sons back down there in the early 20th century. I think what's incredible about you is you've had this incredible career with the, the struggles and the ups and downs. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, yeah all of the stories from when he was working with his father and his brother to breaking away to years and years on the road to you guys, we'll talk about this in a little bit. 
living in the factory with his wife to save money. And the factory's so shaky, he's got to put all the equipment on the side of the floor so the daggone floor doesn't fall in on him. All these struggles that, and I think it's so important, Joe, people hear this because most entrepreneurs listening to this, if they are an entrepreneur or want to be one, they're in the struggle phase. And I think oftentimes I think that struggle phase means I'm not cut out for this yet. Your struggle phase was amazing. I just want to, I found the quote, by the way, on, in the book, I just found it on the part about recognition. You said genius doesn't just rely on creativity, invention, and production. It also needs recognition without being recognized. You can't be perceived as a genius with his spiked running shoe. Granddad Joe had created a brand new product and he employed many ways to let people know about it, which you guys have all just heard. Let's just fast forward. You're in business with your dad. So there's a lot of people and your brother there's a lot of people who are in business with their family right now. Right. Yes. And this is your father. So I'm sure at the time you loved him and admired him. But what did you see in your dad that you knew was going to spell disaster for the company you guys had at the time that you you knew wasn't in you? What, what was the difference between you and your dad, do you think? Well, I think the biggest problem was that uh, grandfather died in 1933. He was only 50, I think 54 years old, young man. And so his his two sons inherited the business. His two sons, um, there were six years between them. And for whatever reason, I don't know, even to today, they just did not get on together. We had to leave the business and do national service. National service um, existed for about 20 years after World War II. And we come back. So we're able to sit there and we're able to say, stand our own corner now and say, this business is dying. What are you doing? You know, you're going to get together, you two. You know, let's build a business. Let's do something. No, didn't happen. It was 1958. Uh, we had had enough. We tried to get my father to say, look, if you want to get together with Bill, why don't you join us and we'll set up a different company Yeah, and we can, we can move forward. But no, it, it, in fact, I, I can remember very well him saying, when I've gone and your uncle's gone, this company's yours. You do what you want with it. Oh, I'm saying, Dad, we don't want you to go. Number one, we don't want you to go. But this company will be dead long before you are. Wow. And uh, no, but it just didn't make any difference. Chapter seven is called Mercury Rises. So you start the business. I'd like this lesson to be taught to people. Can you tell them what you had to do first, sacrifice wise, in order to even start this business? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs go, yeah, I've left and, you know, I'm still nine to five. I still can keep my house. I can keep my cars. I can keep all my expenses. We can still go out to dinner on the weekend. And I'm like, well, that's not what I did. I moved into an apartment that was terrible. I tried to put every dollar I had into my business. I didn't go out anymore on the weekends. And I go all the way back to the birth of Reebok. Take them through what you did just to start sacrifice wise. Jeff and myself, we didn't have much money. In those days, and it was a question that if we were going to do something, we need, we had to go in there 100%. It would have to be a big... But it was also the, the fact that if you're going to do something, you've got to do something you love. You've got to be really in love with it. You've got to create a family. And if you do that, that's 100%. It doesn't matter. Time, it's not 9 to 5. It's 24-7. It's everything. If you need it, you need it. And it does cause, can cause problems with your your family, your actual wife and your children, that can cause problems because you, you develop a family. Reebok became a family. And a lot of people actually come into the family. But you have to be in love. And as you said, Mercury rises. Why Mercury? Because we left in 1958. I remember 
telling my father we're leaving, and that was quite traumatic in its way. It, uh, he, he didn't believe, but uh, when he tried to stab you, well, I don't think he tried to stab me, but he he, he picked up the letter opener and he, he he came towards me, but instead of sort of trying to stab me, he gave me the letter opener and said, "Stab me, stab yes. me now, kill me now," and. Uh, well, wow. you know, like I say, look, Dad, this is not to do with that. You know, you're, you're very welcome to come and join us. Very welcome. But Jeff and I need to make this move now. The parent business was down the road. Jennifer, so we had to think of a new name. And we thought of Mercury. Mercury is already registered. It was actually registered by British Shoe Corporation, a big footwear, mm -hmm. uh, Lotus and Delta were the actual company. Um, and they, they offered it to us for £1,000. Well, we had set a whole factory up for two hundred and fifty pounds. A whole a thousand pounds impossible. I went to see the paint and said, "Well, if, if you can't buy it, you need a new. You have to find another name." Well, you know, he said, "You know, we've been spending time. We've advertised. This is this is our name, Mercury. How do we do that?" He pointed through the window and he pointed to Kodak, hmm. and I'm saying, "What's with Kodak?" He said, "Well, they it's, it's a made up name." They made it up. It's theirs. They own it. Nobody can challenge that. That's it. You can register it. Okay. So we've got to bring you a made-up name or something like that. Yeah. He said, don't bring me one. Bring me 10. But let me take you back to 1943. I'm eight years old. And we're in World War II. Just like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. We had sort of events at home. And I was entered into a 60-yard race. I won the 60-yard race. I'm wearing Foster Spikes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they gave me more grip. Nobody else has spike shoes on it at that time. <laughs> I go up collecting my prize, right? Okay. And what do I get? It was a Webster's American okay. Dictionary. It was an American Dictionary. Why would they give me an American Dictionary? Because the spellings on quite a few things are different. Fast forward now to 1960. We're thinking of names. And I like the letter R. I thought, okay. yeah, ah, strong, strong letter. So I opened my Webster's American Dictionary at letter R. And I start thumbing through. It doesn't take you long to get to R-E. That's R-E-E-B-O-K. What's that? A small South African gazelle. Gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. Fabulous. That's it. Top of the list. We bought R-W-B-O-K. I put this top of the list. Take it to the, uh, the agent. And he, a week later, he came up and said, of all the names, and we did give him 10 names, of all those, um, Reebok is the only one that came out. Come on. We can have that. Yes, you can have that. One caveat. This is the registrar. One caveat. We can only put you in part B of the register. You know, part A, part B. What we're talking about is the register. We can only put part B because if anybody comes along and says, we, we're making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. No. Oh. Well, Jeff and I thought, no, never going to happen. Never going to happen. We'll have Reebok. So we sit in part B of the register. Ten years later, the registrar came back to us to say, we've moved you to part A. Yes, why? Well, everybody now knows that Reebok is a, a shoe, a running shoe. Fantastic. So that's, that's, that's the story of our name. So here we go. Now we're building Reebok. You have to sell your house. You move in with your wife's family. Most people don't make those sacrifices and become entrepreneurs. They don't understand the sacrifice part. 
That's a huge thing. You don't do that. There's probably no Reebok today. You probably don't have a company that ends up, you know, exiting for three or $4 billion the first time around. Like think about that guys. Like he goes from selling his house, picking the name out of a dictionary to a company valued three, four, almost $5 billion range at one point, just sold again to another company for a couple billion dollars. But just think about this for a second. So, but then you figure out, I got to go on the road here and I got to start being a salesman. And is it true? I just want to make sure I read this right. Cause it, it was, you know, a few days ago, not only did you go on the road as a salesman for your own company, but didn't you have to pick up kind of like some side gigs selling for someone else just to feed your family while you were building Reebok, you kind of had a side deal to eat at the time. Did you not? I, I had an agent who was working locally with, with Reebok and he decided he was he packing that in. He was going out in a sports shop. So uh, oh, I said, well, probably I'll have to go and do my own repping. Uh, and he said, well, I've also got a couple of other brands. If you want, I'll tell them that uh, you can do that. So he sort of had uh, suggested to his other brands that uh, I represent them. So I took the other brands and one, one was a darts brand, you know, darts. And it was incredible. The commission on that was really good. So that was okay. But, you know, what we did learn is that uh, you, have to, you have to look at a problem. And with the name, we had to change our name because we had that problem. Four years into our business, we got a letter from uh, Adidas or the lawyers, Adidas lawyers, to say, because in those days, we had two stripes and a T-bar. Mm. And they said our two stripes and a T-bar infringed their three stripes. Oh, and Jeff and I, I'm saying, look, Jeff, you know, what are we going to do? And then we, we thought, just a minute, Adidas are writing us a letter. Adidas know we're here. Adidas, mm. we, we must be disturbing them a little bit. They've recognized yeah. us. Okay. So mm. when, you, when you get a problem, <clears throat> why don't you look at it and think, well, that's telling you something. It's telling you mm. you've got to think a bit deeper. And you can go around it. You can change it. So we've always uh, almost welcomed problems <clears throat> because it's given us the opportunity to rethink where we are. Now we come out with a better silhouette, better name. So, you know, this is Reba. Now I'm going on the road. And I, I call in at the retailers. And apart from selling dart flies, I do introduce Reebok. And mm -hmm. the retailers saying, Reebok, who's Reebok? And I give him a story and show him some very nice shoes. And he looks up on his shelf and says, look, I've got uh, Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? That mm -hmm. resonated. That was, I think, he doesn't need Reebok. Mm. I, I, I've got to find out who needs Reebok. Interesting. And we used, to, we used to go to events and we used to take shoes in the back of the car and we used to sell them at events. Pretty and I'm thinking, there's 100 athletes coming past. And they, they're the people. They're my consumers. It is. Yep. Is <laughs> it? They're my consumers. I need to get straight to them, which I did. Fortunately, at that point, the uh, the the running clubs in the UK were all part of the three A's: the Amateur Athletic Association and the Amateur Athletic Association. They produced a handbook, and in that handbook was the name and address of every secretary of every club in the country. Mm. Three hundred clubs. Mm. Letters went out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we'll give you 15% off if you yep. want to buy direct from us. And if anybody in your, uh, in your club wishes to be an agent, then he can have the 15% and we'll deal direct. Mm. I got 100 agents on the first letter. No way. Great. Yeah. A month later, I sent a second letter to some people who are not uh, 
come. And I got another 50 agents. We ended up with about 250 agents. And right, we're selling direct. And what happens? Then the retailers, the retailers are picking the phone up. And they're saying, um, Mr. Foster, um, we believe you're, you're supplying our local club direct. Mm. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I, I'll stock your shoes if, if you know, you, you stop selling. <laughs> you yep. stop selling. Right. I thought about this for a couple of minutes or whatever, maybe not that time. So, uh, the answer to it is no. But what I will do, you you, you will get the uh, the shoes at wholesale price. We will also advertise that you are a dealer, and uh, and I'm sure a lot of people would prefer to go to you. But I'm not going to stop selling direct. About ninety percent of the retailers that phoned me accepted that. Did. and so our business is now starting to grow. Uh, locally and, and, and the retail stores. It, you guys, interesting points here. There's a few. One, what Joe said about problems. That's, that should be drawing your attention to something and should be getting you to pivot and be creative and using your entrepreneurial genius. That's number one. Number two, he even says, I took a step back so that we could go forward. In the book, he uses this phrase because he had to go make sure he was feeding himself, which is this dart deal and selling this other stuff. He was willing to do basically whatever was required to stay in business. I think one of the rules of entrepreneurship that is understated is your first business is to stay in business. And Joe found all these different ways to stay in business. I want you to think about this. Here's this guy. He's out selling darts and doing these other things to stay in business. He finally gets this deal with the, the, uh, the direct people. He doesn't know it at the time, but he is over time, over a decade or so, about to go face to face with Adidas and Nike and kick their tail for a while, right? I want you to think about this. There's these two brothers, right? Joe's really driving it. They got nothing going on, and he's about to go soon, someday, take on Nike and Adidas. Think about how far you might be able to go if you could just stay in business and make these pivots. But this wasn't like a week of rejection for you, Joe, or a year. There's really decades right. of then there's the scale issues. Then you get these big orders. You can't fill them sometimes, right? Like, how did you emotionally deal? Is it just your makeup or did you ever want to quit? And how did you deal with all of the rejection? I want you guys to think about this before he answers this. Decades of rejection. Not a week, not a month, not six months, not two years the different forms of rejection over and over again. How did you deal with it? Well, to me, I love a challenge. And uh, the reason that I left Reebok and retired was because at that time we got so big, the challenge had gone. So I like a challenge. And uh, I also like to find an answer. There's a question there. And there's got to be an answer. And we're now talking about the American market because the, uh, the UK market, we're doing very nicely. We were number one in the UK. We were recognized as uh, the experts. That, you know, in fact, we, we had a little tag inside our shoe, which said the athlete's shoe. And we were. The athletes, athletes were coming to us. But uh, you know, if we could have gone into soccer, that would have been okay. That's, that's the big market in the UK, big market in Europe. Hmm. But unfortunately, by the time Jeff and I got into business, Adidas had really got a grip of that market. For us to try and get into that market, we needed money. We, it was a money market. However, in 1968, I am reading a magazine, and uh, I'd wanted to get to America. And there'd been resistance. No, that's too expensive to go over to America. But the magazine, I'm reading the magazine, 
and the governments are, are advertising for people to export to America. And this was sports magazine. So they were saying, we will, we will pay for a stand at the NSJ show, the National Sporting Goods of America show in Chicago. We'll pay for a stand for you. We'll pay for your return airfare, and we'll pay half of your hotel bill. Mm. Well, this is 68. No more resistance. Yeah, you can go to America. Yeah. So that was it. I was going to go to America in 68. And I went with a friend, a friend I was making climbing boots for. So he was in sort of uh, the outdoor business. We were in the sports business. And we went together. We stopped off in New York and we had some wandering rounds. I'm looking at the sports stores. He's looking at the outdoor stores. And then we go on to Chicago and we have a nice stand and people are coming up. Lovely shoe. Great. Where do I get this shoe from? And I'm saying England. The resistance was they didn't want to be bothered with importation and all yeah. the detail. They were a sports store. They yeah. were wanting to just, just be able to say, knock on somebody's door or pick a phone up and just order a few pairs of shoes. That's what they wanted. I realized I need I need a distributor. I need somebody in the in the States who's going to take on this, take on the Reebok brand and sell locally. Okay, they love my brand, but that was a problem. Now this is 1968. I actually got into America in 1979. Oh That's 11 God. years. I took 11 years from there. 11 years. I'm knocking on that door. Oh but, you know, I, I'm trying to push the price. And I, I had at least six failed attempts. This is where your luck comes in. Uh, late 60s and all the way through the 70s, the running category became something really big. It exploded. Mm -hmm. And in America, Nike were growing with that. Yeah. And a few more, New Balance, Saucony, a lot of companies growing at that time. And uh, Bob Anderson had Runner's World. Runner's yeah. World, that magazine, started as an A4 page, and by 1975, it was a full, glossy magazine. Mm -hmm. So good, selling it all these athletes. Well, you know, they've got 350 million people in America at that time. And at that time, probably 10% were running. 35 million runners out there. Okay, yeah. that's a good number. Um, and maybe 10% of those would want the best shoe. Bob Anderson told everybody the number one shoe, and it was a Nike. Of course it was a Nike. Well, had to be. Um, but, you know, Phil Knight, he's importing his shoes from Japan. Yeah. And so demand is rising now. He's the number one shoe. Well, demand. Probably three million people would like that number one shoe. Mm. Can Phil get that production? No. Mm. You know, can knock on the door of Onitsuka. He could knock on his door for as long as he wants, but could he get enough shoes? No. And, you know, by the time he's getting the shoes through, 12 months later, well, Bob Anderson decides, no, we've had enough of that one. We're going to have another number one. Mm. So, of course, the problem is shoes are coming in now. I put another number one. Everybody turns away. No, 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 we don't want that Nike now. We want this new one. Mm. Probably a new balance at that time. Somebody, or maybe, maybe Bob Anderson worked it out for himself. Ah, this isn't going to work. Let's, let's start uh, star ratings. So the top one, we'll have a five-star yeah. shoe, then we'll go down, down, down. We could make a five-star shoe. I knew that. And I'd called in on, on, on Bob Anderson and had chats with him. And, you know, you, you got to get in all these people. And yeah, because Phil was in with him, right? Phil Knight had an in with him. Well, right? Of course, he was, he was fairly, lo fairly local. So, you know, yeah. you, you knew yeah. that, uh, yeah, if you, if you do a good bit of advertising, you're going to get yeah more uh, people to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I knew he could get a five-star. 
by 1978, we had our five-star Aztec shoe. 1979, I'm at the NSJ show, February, with my ready five-star shoes. This is going to be a five-star. Kmart come up and say, because I don't think Kmart were that interested in five-star shoes, but running was so big, they wanted a product. Mm-hmm. Um, right, we'd like 25,000 purse. Oh, Okay. Sounds good. At last, we're in here, 25,000 pairs, and uh, we haven't even got a five-star shoe there. Um, right, okay, but uh, that's about six months' work for our small factory in the UK. But, you know, when you do these things, we're going for five stars. We, we're going to need help. So I had a friend at Barter. Barter, at that point, were the biggest shoemakers in the world. And a friend of mine, he was running the sports division. We'll help you. You get, you know, you get a five-star shoe, we'll help you. Great, I can handle that. Then came out and said, yeah, but we want a better price. Ah, yeah, well, Barter could do a better price than we could, but really, this meant South Korea. This meant going to South Korea. Again, we pre-thought this, and I had, uh, I connected with an agent for a South Korean uh, factory, right? And, and they could make the shoe at less than half the price that we could, and they were good. <laughs> they were good. Mm. Yeah, so, okay, we've got that one covered. But, you know, part of the show, we're there for four days. Along came Paul Feynman. This is the guy. Yeah. This is the guy. Yeah. And Paul, I could tell, you know, he's like a bit fed up with life. He's running <laughs> Boston. <laughs> he's running Boston camping. Mm. And he, he knows that running is growing. Outdoor is like, Still the same old. We're going round this. Uh, we're going round every year. We're doing the same. And he's running Boston Camping with his brother and his brother-in-law. And uh, yeah, well, Joey said, "Yeah, I'd love to be your distributor." Mm. Uh, he said, "But I need a five-star shoe. Maybe it's going to be a five-star shoe, but unless it's a five-star shoe, I really can't take the risk." I said, "Okay, Paul, we're going to have to wait till uh, the end of July because the the shoe edition." Is August. That's when Bob Anderson comes out with his shoe edition. Okay, we fast forward now to the last week in July. And uh, this is when the, the magazine, the August magazine, would be out. And I phoned Paul, can you nip down to the uh, local kiosk, see if Runner's World is there, because this will be the shoe edition. An hour later, Paul came back and said, Joe, yes, five stars. You got it. Fantastic. Yeah. But also Inca. And Midas, they also got five stars. That was it. That was our in to the market. We now you're in. Five star shoes. Yeah. You started Mercury, which is Reebok, in 1958. Is that right? Right. So this is 21 years into the yes. game. Yeah. 21 years as an entrepreneur struggling, selling commissions, UK, trying to get into the US, back and forth. And then there's like this interesting pivot that takes place. So then you're starting to build the business. This, this fireman guy is a big part of the company, obviously, and ends up becoming yeah. a major part of the company. Let's make one more pivot on Reebok, then we'll talk about when it's sold. The one more pivot that's sort of incredible about all is this, we're talking about all this running stuff, right? So runner's world, chasing, getting Nike, getting the five stars, doing all this stuff. Now you're relevant. And oftentimes companies become dogmatic. You think about, they get stuck in like legacy thinking. Small entrepreneurs have it too. You take a look at a blockbuster video, they should have been Netflix, but they never pivoted. They just right. never did it, right? You think about, you know, Barnes & Noble bookstores. They probably should have been Amazon, but they couldn't see 
beyond where they were. Right. You, on the other hand, you got this running thing going and it's competitive. You're doing well. And then like women's sports comes along aerobics specifically, right? Specifically. Yes. And nobody else is even looking at this stuff. No one's even thinking about this. And then what do you guys do? This is really to me, like maybe one of the key decisions of the whole company in the whole time. Oh, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, there are many key decisions that make small changes. Uh, sometimes we've gone to America. That was poor fine. <clears throat> but of course, okay, we're a running company and we, we had a tech rep, tech rep, Arjel, Arjel Martinez. He's down in LA. Yeah. And he's a good, in fact, he, he actually tried out for the Olympics. He was quite a good athlete, but he's, he's in there yeah. and he's selling, selling the benefits of Reebok. His wife, Frankie, his wife, Frankie is coming home and from aerobics classes. She's going there with her friends and they're coming back and they're following it. And they'll say, well, what are you doing? Well, we're going to aerobics. Uh, what's aerobics? Mm-hmm. Well, we're exercising to music, and it's fantastic, fabulous. And she was so enthusiastic. I said, can I come down and have a look at what you're doing? Crazy. Oh, okay, we'll do that next time. He goes down. He sees the instructor wearing a pair of sneakers. I think at the time, they were probably New Balance, if I can remember. Just okay. New Balance made it in white, so all white, just like great. And half the class, they were wearing the same sneaker. The other half of the class, nothing. Mm. We're not wearing shoes at all. This was his light bulb moment. This was his moment of time. Why don't we just make a shoe for these girls? Huge. On, on, a, on, a, on a woman's last, woman's size is only, mm. all white, this little Reebok there with a Union Jack and nice cushions and make it in glove leather because he, he had this feeling that if we just put this shoe on, it was so comfortable, glove leather would do it. Okay, off he went, up, see Paul Fireman. Mm. I think he got the red eye from L.A. to Boston and go see Paul. And he's full of this. And Paul's saying, whoa, slow down. <laughs> you know, yeah. Slow down. The major a yeah. yeah, we're a running company. What, yeah. what, what, what do we want to be doing making dancing shoes for yeah. girls? I know this full of this. But Paul's saying, okay, you know, let's give it some time. See, see what happens. Mm-hmm. That's too slow for Arnold. No, he went around the back door. He had a word with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett's in charge of production. He persuaded Steve to get him a couple of hundred purrs. Love and when it. he got them, down there. Arnold gives them to the instructors because it's growing all the time. This the instructors and mm-hmm. some of the leading uh, sort of girls down there, girls who were influencing. And mm-hmm. I could say the rest is history. However, these shoes were made out of glove leather. Glove leather, mm-hmm. just like a piece of paper, you can just tear it apart. So the shoes are falling apart. Oh, what do we do? Oh, we put nylon on it. Line it with nylon. By this time, I'm learning whoa, what we're doing, what we're doing. And you're lining with nylon, but just a minute. You use leather because leather breathes. And you put nylon on, you stop it breathing. Oh, okay then. We'll punch some holes in the front. So they punch holes in. This answers the breathing problem. And it becomes a design point. At that point, yeah. I realized that being a, shoemaker, being a shoemaker has its limitations. You need to be a marketing man. We cured the problem with the leather. We got something more like garment leather, which was stronger, and that was okay. And then, of course, you get Jane Fonda buying yep. a pair of uh, a freestyle and using them yep. in her videos. And she's, she's the bought. face of aerobics, everybody, at that time. She's the face of this yep. whole industry at the time, and now she's wearing your shoe. And she bought them. And at yep. that time, 
we were doing nicely. We were a nine million dollar business, not bad, but mm-hmm. months later we were a thirty million dollar business. And crazy. Then another one, ninety million dollar business. Then a three hundred million dollar business. Then a nine hundred million dollar business in between four and five nine hundred million from nine million. It just went like a rocket. Did everybody just hear this? Did everybody just hear that? Let's just let's just do that again really quick. That's he lived it. So he's like, yeah, we did. You guys, you got a business that you've taken 20 some odd years to get to where it's a $9 million business. You're a running company. A lot of you are out there. You're like, we're a fitness company. We're a financial company. We're a mortgage company. And you're stuck. Like Blockbuster thought they were a video store company. These guys eventually had the vision to pivot and they go nine, 30, 90, 900, right? Like after all those years, this one critical move, And you just go back in the history, guys. You go back to the vision to break away from dad. I just want to give you the credit for this, Joe, because I just think it's such a remarkable story. The vision, hard to say, dad, I'm going. It's your father, right? And he was so crushed, he hands you the the letter opener and says, stab me, right? So, but you saw there wasn't a vision there. Then the, the, okay, I'll sacrifice. I'll sell my house. We'll move in. We'll, then we'll live in the factory if we have to. And then it's the, the just getting through the UK. Then it's the, okay, I'll have to make money elsewhere and sell commissions for a while. Then it's getting into the country. Then it's all that time. Then it's meeting firemen, right? And finally having a guy who gets it that you're running with. And still, it's a $9 million company. And you're competing against Nike and Adidas, like I said to everybody in the beginning. Then this pivot happens because they can pivot on the fly. They're nimble. They pivot on the fly. My friend Phil Nike, he doesn't see the vision for this. Adidas didn't see the vision for this. Joe and his partner saw the vision for this and they go to a $900 million company. And then Joe, ultimately when Adidas buys it, right? That's who ends up buying the company. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. And what do they end up buying the company for roughly? Well, I, I retired. I, yeah. I retired, but they, they, they paid um, $3.6 billion. $3.6 billion, And it just sold again recently after a lot of years where they didn't know what the heck to do with it, frankly, no offense to them, but they didn't know what to do with Reebok after they got it. Like a lot of big brands that buy it just sold again for like two and a half billion to a group Shaquille's a part of, right? Isn't that correct? ABG. And do you know that deal is just closed today? It closed today. today. It's, today no. it's just closed. Yeah. So now Reebok is ABG and we just sent them uh, the best wishes. Look after my baby. Oh, yeah. You sit back at, you'll be 87 in May. Yes. You sit back and, you know, do you reflect on this journey of all these decisions and choices and sacrifices? I think it's interesting when I get people on that have made just done incredible things in their life. I think it's because they lived it. They don't see it that way. And you're nodding. So you agree. Yes. But the story is just this unbelievable story of having this grandfather who's this revolutionary, happens to be a shoemaker, right? Absolutely. You know, and then and then you get born on his birthday, but you never meet him because it's two years after he dies. Right. You get named after him. You go on to build freaking Reebok. Like, that's incredible. And it takes you, really, when did you know you had it done? So you start in 58. When did you go, yeah, this thing's really rolling now what year was it that you went we're a big time company now well that that would have been in uh, 1979 when we when we actually came through to get into america i knew at that time once once we got the hook that was the thing we needed the hook the hook was being a five-star shoe 
Mm. You know, trying to push, trying to push, that needs a lot of money, a lot of energy, yeah. uh, and a lot of gambling. We hadn't got the, we got the energy, we didn't have the money. But mm. as soon as we got in, this was the hook. As soon as we got in, I knew then that we uh, would achieve it. And do you know, the saddest thing in my life is that just at that point, my brother died. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real sad part because there are things that are sad in these sort of things. That, you know, it's not all good. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of suffering goes on, but you know, you, it, that makes you more determined. Was the suffering worth it? Honestly, I want to ask you, and by the way, I'm sorry for the loss of your brother. It's really a sad part of the story of everything. Right. And if we have a few more minutes, I'd like to ask you a couple things about that. Would that be okay sure. with a couple minutes on it? Yeah, I'm okay with it. You yeah, say in well. the book, there's a lot of suffering and sacrifice too. And one of the things you're very open about, you lost a daughter. Yes. But you, one of the two, I think leukemia, like 26 years old. Leukemia, um, 26, yes, absolutely. I told you, I read that book. <laughs> you did. You, did and, read uh, you say in the book that, hey, I wasn't present enough as a father or a husband the first time around. And I'm wondering how you feel about that and what advice would you give to an entrepreneur with a young family right now in terms of trying to find, not balance, there's absolutely no balance as an entrepreneur, but in terms of trying to you know, find those times to be present and to put family as a priority as you're doing it, what would you, what would you say about all that? If you can make time, make it. If you can take them along with you, take them along with you. It's, it's good. Yeah, eventually my wife, did move, did come with us. Eventually, uh, when, we, when we were doing the Monte Carlo uh, tennis tournaments and I, I toured the world and my wife came with me and there's some good stories in there. Um, but um, the, the thing is with your family, Reebok became my family. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, in order to be an entrepreneur and to be successful, you need to be 100%. You need to be in there. If the business needs you, you have to go. The compensations are you try. You try to keep everybody at home informed and part of it. I used to, I still have them. I used to send postcards home from wherever I was. I used to send a postcard mm. just say hi to all the family. This is what's going on. So, I mean, sometimes I, I would arrive home before the postcards arrived. But, <laughs> but if I'm away for three weeks, doing around the world trip, which quite often I was, I would send postcards and try. And, and I would also, I was always away on my son's birthday because his birthday was the same dates as the NSGA show in Chicago. So I was always away. But, you know, I, I hoped that the compensation for that was I used to take him something back from America, which none of his friends would have had. You know, yeah. this is a toy. This is what, this came from America, you know. And, and so... You, you try your best to sort of bring them in and, and hopefully they will understand. I don't think they, I, I think the problem is with the family. There's a little bit of, uh, well, no matter how much you, you try, you don't satisfy them, no matter yeah. how much. You, because yeah. you just cannot be there all the time. The, the yeah. business demands. And to be successful, I, I think there are things that you surrender, but the, the most, I mean, when we talk about the tragedies and the things that happen, it's not so much that on occasions your wife doesn't like the way things are going. It's mm -hmm. it's when your your daughter dies or your brother dies. Mm -hmm. These are things you can't change. I imagine, Joe, that you're that Jeff, your dad, your grandfather are immensely proud of you. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta think there's a part of them that are going, I can't believe all this crap happened too. <laughs> I think they have to be amazed. I'm curious. 
You did. I, I, I know that. A couple last things. So you have traveled the world. Many times, yeah. Many times. So you've met people from all over the world. What have you learned about people in general? Such an interesting time, isn't it? You know, where in different yeah. parts of the world, we're against each other here, there, and, you know, seems as if well, it's a very divisive time. But what have you learned about people as you've traveled the world and done business many, many times over? Expanding Reebok. I put Paul Feynman on there after Paul. I put on about 30 different countries. And luckily, because we were doing well in America, I knew if we did well in America, my job beyond that would be easy. And I'd be meeting the right people. So I could I could select the people that, uh, that would now be- become Reebok, wherever, Australia, whatever, Greece, whatever country. And, you know, they're still friends today. You know, those people are still friends because you make friends, you share things. So uh, I-, I think traveling, yes, it's, uh, you know, if you're traveling with a message, then there's a lot of people want to talk to you. Mm. Um, I-, I guess if you're just a student backpacking and, and traveling, that's, that's a different thing. You see in bits and pieces. Again, when, when I traveled, a lot of the time, I uh, it was business, you know. So mm. it relied upon somebody saying, "Well, why don't you visit this?" Or was it? You don't see that much. I mean, I, I I never got well. I got to China a few times, but never saw the Great Wall. And maybe one of those one of these days, I'll be able to go and see the Great Wall. Um, but I, yeah. I I guess I see certain things that a lot of people don't see. Is it worth it? All the sacrifices, all the travel, all the struggle, the time away from family, um, uh, the stress. If you could do it all again, would you? Was it worth it? Do you, you must reflect a little bit. I'm sure writing the book caused you to reflect. If I asked you whether it was worth it or not, what would you say? Um, well, yes, it's worth it. Absolutely. I, I, I remember reading Shoe Dog, uh, Phil Knight's book. Mm-hmm. And I, I know he ended up by saying, I just wish I could do it all again. Yeah. Um, I can understand that. And, you know, Phil and I, we obviously traveled a very similar path in many ways. Mm. And, and he lost a son. Yeah. Just as I lost a daughter, he lost a son. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you can't alter that. Maybe, I, I don't know what the maybes are on that. But, you know, yes, it was worth it. The yeah. reason it's worth it is because I retired at 89. And I decided I'm, in 1989, I retired. And I was going to put my feet up and rest. But the phone kept ringing. You know, Joe, what do we do here? Joe, mm-hmm. we've got this this happening. You know, it's like, uh, it's a bit like the Eagles in Hotel California. Mm-hmm. You can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> so good. That's so good. That's so good. Oh, my gosh, I enjoy you so much. All right, last question, because, I, I, you know, you're in, you're in England, and it's not fair time change-wise. So um, I have to ask for on the behalf of, of entrepreneurs that are listening to, you know, as I introduced you as a legend and um, what advice would you just give in general, but to a, a budding entrepreneur, they're driving in their car right now, or they're running on the treadmill and they're listening to you and the story. And, you know, maybe they're watching it on YouTube and they go, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the struggle, brother. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't know whether I'm supposed to be doing this or not. I don't really know what to be thinking. You know, I don't know whether I should believe in myself. What just advice would you do if you saw that entrepreneur? What would you say to them? Well, you know, I think to be an entrepreneur, you've got to know your business. You've got to know everything about it. You've got to, nobody can ask you a question you can't answer about your business. You've got to know it. And today is technology. Today is so much technology. But, you know, the most important things 
as far as I'm concerned, is number one, have fun. You've got to have fun. If you're not having fun, you're not in the right place. Number two, have a lot more fun. A lot more fun. Number three, really, really have fun. Because that's where you'll enjoy it and you'll be successful. If you're not having fun. And it doesn't mean to say that every day you have fun. But what it does mean to say, you get up and I'm going to have fun. And that way you'll be successful. Enjoy it. I love it. I I always say winning is more fun than fun is fun. So go ahead and decide you're going to win as an entrepreneur too. That'll increase the fun level for sure. You know, the game isn't over until you've won. (laughs) It's as simple as that. That's so good. I feel like we won today. Like my audience won. I won. I got the chance to spend an hour with you and the story's incredible. And by the way, we've touched on probably 15 to 20% of the entire story today. And so I'd encourage you to go get Shoemaker, go get the book. Joe is a treasure. And um, I enjoyed you so much today. I want to be heading towards 87 years old, looking like you, talking like you, with your net worth, with your great family that you have there with you just right off of the camera and helping as many people as you helped today that you're, you're a hero to me. And I admire you very, very much, Joe. So thank you for being here today. Please share today's show with as many people as you love and care about that want to be inspired, that want to learn, that want to grow. We're the fastest growing show in the world. And we keep growing every 90 days, like doubling. And that's because of people like Joe Foster and because of people like you listening to it, that share it with other people. So thank you, everybody. Joe, thank you. Been a pleasure. It really has. My pleasure. God bless everybody. Max out. This is the Ed Milet Show.